You are listening to Girl Speak, a podcast series all about art, history, and contemporary culture with a girl's eye view. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 116 of Girl Speak Across Time and Space. I'm Tiffany Rhodes, program developer with Girl Museum. Thanks for tuning in, downloading, or streaming us today. Girl Speak is produced by Girl Museum, the first and only museum in the world dedicated to celebrating girlhood. Girl Museum explores the art, history, and culture of girls around the world in the past and present. All of our programs are volunteer run and supported by listeners like you. Special thanks to our sisterhood patrons. Denise McLean Davison, Erica Holt, Hilary Rose, Juliana Griffin, Mary Celeste Kearney, and Michelle Taylor Bukak. Visit us on the web at www.girlmuseum.org. Across Time and Space, Multicultural Representations of Girlhood was one of our first shows. A survey of, Im- of girl images from the beginning of recorded civilizations to the present, across many cultures and eras. We chose to present this show as an initial research foray into how girls and girlhood are represented in history. What types of objects showcase girls? What do they tell us about girls' lives? Are there periods or cultures where girls are significant or completely absent? Many societies do not significantly represent children, especially girls, so it was foundational to helping us establish lines of inquiry and possibility in studying the material culture and evidence of girlhood. This show eventually led to more research, developing internal databases of girl-related objects and artworks in museums around the world, providing ideas for future exhibitions, and helping us identify places where inquiring about girlhood would be beneficial to our mission. As I look back at this exhibition, it still astounds me how girls have been present in nearly all periods and cultures. Once I joined Girl Museum, I built on Across Time and Space to produce another exhibition about girl representation in history, 52 Objects in the History of Girlhood. By no means encyclopedic, 52 Objects was a foray to understand the boundaries of girlhood representation, which we found had no boundaries. It also, as a public historian, satisfied my curiosity in going beyond art history and into the world of ethnographic, archaeological, and historical artifacts to see evidence of girlhood. So today, in the spirit of this continuing inquiry, I want to share with you my top five objects from across time and space. These are objects that speak to me, that led to greater inquiry, and that illustrate how we are just now scratching the surface on what we know and understand about girls and girlhood. Roman Italy, early 2nd century, common era. For this time period, we found a statue of a girl playing astrologi, also known as knucklebones, dated to between 130 and 150 Common Era, and held by the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. Girls are frequent subjects of Roman statuary, with several examples showing girls playing games. When we first researched this, our narrative was brief, only finding that knucklebones was played by girls and boys, similar to today's jacks or dice games. We also realized that the statue is a copy of a Hellenistic, or Greek, statue, since she is wearing a Greek-style chiton outfit that falls off one shoulder. The Romans absorbed Greece into their empire, and for all the cultures they absorbed, they blended Roman culture with the origin culture to help assimilate the people and impose Roman rule. They also, as Romans do, tended to credit themselves for things that other cultures invented or made. 
While this statue is intriguing, it wasn't until we began producing Classical Girls, an exhibition on classical Greece and Rome, that we realized its true importance. In classical Greece, social ideas limited how much a girl could do outside the house, given her worth was measured by her domestic activities. In other words, girls were prized as future wives and mothers. For girls who could not afford purely domestic life, their options were to become craftswomen, vendors, or domestic servants, providing them with more interaction with the outside world. Unfortunately, no matter their status, Greek girls and women left few records of their lives. Exploring the theme of recreation, we did find several pieces of evidence on girls' play that relate to the girl playing astrologi. Other games were Ephedrismos, a game of throwing stones, and Chalichalon, something similar to modern games of Duck, Duck, Goose. We also explored astrologi, or knuckle bones, where players throw bones on the ground and count up points according to the way they landed. Players could also throw the bones up in the air and catch them on the backs of their hands as they fell. The basic rules have survived to present day, eventually becoming what we know as playing jacks. Despite the lack of girls' written narratives, there is literary evidence depicting girls and women singing, talking, and telling stories while engaging in domestic activities. From this evidence, we can infer that though girls were primarily valued as wives and mothers, they had time, whether indirectly during domestic activities or directly in times, for relaxation, to engage and play with each other. Unfortunately, there is little evidence to tell us whether girls also played with boys, or at what age the sexes were separated into defined spheres of activity. However, as we stated in Classical Girls, Although society had strict ideals for girls' lives and roles depicted in their art, we, now, we know that not all girls fit inside them. A girl's life might look very different depending on where and when she lived and how wealthy her parents were. Some must have worked outside their homes out of necessity, while others were more educated. But it can be difficult to find visual evidence of girls engaged in unusual activities. You can explore stories of unusual classical-era girls in our exhibition, Classical Girls, on our website. Netherlands, mid-17th century. We jump ahead several centuries to my next favorite, Vermeer's Girl Reading a Letter at an Open Window. Vermeer's paintings are highly researched and interpreted, with many having multiple supposed meanings. When we published this show, we mentioned some of those. Perhaps the girl is reading a letter from her lover with the apples, a forbidden fruit in Christianity, signifying that their love was forbidden. Another interpretation sees the girl as a reinterpretation of the Annunciation scene from the Bible, as if Mary, in the 17th century, would receive the news via letter rather than angel, since the light and open window are typical of other paintings of the Annunciation scene. But what I love most is what art historians tend to disregard. Perhaps this was just Vermeer wanting to paint a girl reading a letter. The light and shadows of his studio figure greatly in his paintings, the most famous of which is Girl with a Pearl Earring. In an interpretation of that painting, which is now a novel and movie, Tracy Chevalier proposed that perhaps the girl is simply a servant whom Vermeer's patron wanted painted like a higher-class girl. Perhaps the light was right as she was cleaning, and Vermeer's artistic eyes saw something he wanted to paint. Taking this view, girl reading a letter becomes a moment in time, captured by Vermeer. Since many scholars think the girl might be his wife, Katerina Bolds, Perhaps Vermeer simply saw her reading in his studio and decided he wanted to paint her. We will never truly know what Vermeer intended, 
But it's intriguing to think that all this time, all these interpretations and religious imagery and scholarly arguments, we could be wrong. Perhaps Vermeer simply saw something beautiful and decided to paint her. That's the mystery I love. Russia, late 18th century. This is a painting you might have seen frequently on our social media. Made in 1767 by Ivan Argunov, this portrait of a Kalmyk girl, held in the Russian Museum, was painted at the request of Countess Varvara Sheremetev, one of the richest women in Russia. It shows her serf, named Anushka, whom she educated, holding a picture of the Countess. As we recounted in 2009, this is a striking portrait for several reasons. Firstly, lower-class people were typically represented as generic stereotypes, so to have an individualized portrait is unique. Kalmyks were a group from Western Mongolia, which accounts for Anushka's dark and Asiatic appearance. Representations of servants, especially of other cultures, were also typically in a subservient state, not sitting for a formal portrait with a lovely dress, hat, and jewelry. Clearly, the relationships between the Countess and Anushka was special. What we know about Anushka is very little. We have to extrapolate her life from histories of Russian serfs, Ivan Argonov's own story, since he was a serf, and the countess who owned her. We know that the countess primarily resided in St. Petersburg, in a house on Milionaya Street. In the 1740s, she allowed Ivan to study painting with a German artist working for the Empress Elizabeth of Russia, as well as his cousins, who were also painters for the imperial residences. Likely, the countess recognized and wanted to cultivate Ivan's talents. It is certainly cheaper to pay your own serf than to hire an independent painter. Ivan's works combined the traditions of Russian Parsuna art with the new Baroque period influences, allowing the countess to be on the forefront of art fashion in her portraits. Ivan also was a creator of posthumous portraits, so it is likely that the countess had him paint dead relatives or friends. Ivan likely painted other serfs. His portrait of an unknown woman in peasant dress, considered his great masterpiece, is likely of the serf actress and singer of the countess, known as Anna Kovalyev, Kovalyev Zemchugova. Sorry, I really can't say Russian names that well. <laughs> Unfortunately, very little is available about the countess, which makes information about Anushka even more scarce. Perhaps in some Russian archive lives the story of Anushka and her countess, explaining why portraits of serfs dressed in fine garb were painted. From a historian's view, it is most likely to showcase Ivan's talents and her serf's obedience to her. But to paint a young girl denotes a special relationship. Perhaps Anushka was recognized as talented, like Ivan, and went on to be someone. But we may never fully know. New Zealand mid-19th century. This portrait of an indigenous girl in New Zealand is a rendering of both a distant reality, an illustration of life in the uncolonized Pacific, but also an exploitive, imperialistic image. It wasn't until I began working at Girl Museum, and with Ashley, that I came to understand that these images, often produced by missionaries, tourists, or expedition artists, are highly problematic. At first glance, it seems, simply seems to be an illustration of what an indigenous girl looked like, Yet, as Ashley has helped me understand, many images of women with their bodies bare were created under the flag of science, knowing full well that the audience for such images expects respectable women to be clothed and exotic, uncivilized girls to be naked. 
George French Agnes's ethnographic images were primarily meant to record the Maori people and traditions. This is the way they are usually understood. Yet her face betrays something. She seems highly European in facial features, which sentimentalize and offers an image of a European as a Maori. This is problematic. Why European artists depicted natives less than accurately is debated by scholars all over the world, since it is a phenomenon encountered in nearly every country that Europeans explored and or conquered. Even here in America, I frequently encounter explorers' images that are problematic, framing native societies and girls in European terms. This is likely due to problems of translation, since native concepts don't always have clear matches in other cultures, but also due to Europeans' concept of themselves. Thinking themselves the most civilized race, Europeans of the 15th through the early 20th centuries didn't recognize that native societies were as complex, multifaceted, and quote-unquote civilized as they were. Under the guise of religion, trade, or simply greed, Europeans stripped away indigenous cultures' rights and unique customs, often converting them to Christianity and imposing European societal norms, including the subjugation and sexualization of women. That isn't to say indigenous societies didn't subjugate females, but Europeans' influence is perhaps more noticeable, leaving long-lasting effects on how we perceive and treat indigenous peoples today. This innocent portrait of a girl hides that legacy. It makes my heart break to never know her truth. Austria, early 20th century. Egon Schiele is a controversial figure in art history. This work, called Two Young Girls, is, as the exhibition states, entirely problematic. Scheele is best known for his explicit representations of nude women, often in pre- or post-coital states of languor. With the knowledge that he was driven out of several communities because of his activities, regularly used delinquent girls as models in his home, and was charged with seducing a girl under the age of consent, which at that time was 14, in an era where blind eyes were constantly turned, these images take on a sinister tone rebelling against a polite society, being avant-garde, and living a bohemian lifestyle is the prerogative of the artist. However, this does not excuse Scheele's behavior. In mid-2018, Ashley and I took Scheele's work up again. Responding to an article by Jane Callier on Scheele and the Me Too movement in the art world, we took opposing sides. Ashley's opinions, represented in time and space, were expanded on. Her response talked about consent, lawmaking, and whether 100 years makes a more significant difference in how we perceive and should treat artists whose work is problematic. Ashley stated, We are the same people. We have known what is right and wrong for centuries. It doesn't mean that is how we have always conducted ourselves. Thus the need for laws to govern and religions to forgive. She then expands into how art institutions promote genius over morality, ignoring the subject, in this case girls, in favor of an artist who is well-known and respected, like Scheele, stating, Clearly, Kallir and many others in the art world value his life, because he is a white male artist, infinitely more than the girls he used for his art. This belief is widespread, and it has not changed much over time. We still value one life over another, boys over girls, rich over poor. While I understand Ashley's viewpoint, as a public historian, I have to take Scheele into the context of his time and place, including the societal attitudes towards girls. As I stated in my opinion piece, I am not an art person, but looking at it from a historian's perspective, I can slightly see Callier's point. We do have to consider the time that artists lived in, and that our own moral standards are vastly different from their times. 
However, that isn't to say they are not sex offenders in our definition. It is merely a basis for saying that, yes, they did things we now find morally reprehensible and wrong, things that violate a woman's inherent human rights. But if we judge them in their time and place, we would lose. To merely condemn all artists who had a story that does not align with our values is simply akin to taking down Confederate monuments without any real discussion of the narrative and norms that placed them there to begin with. Should we take such monuments and artists off their pedestals? Yes. Should we condemn them? Perhaps. Should we forget them and assign them the role of countless women forgotten in the annals of history? No. Today, I stand by my opinions. To simply condemn and dismiss is to forget how our society and our norms have developed. To cast off the moral reasoning developed over centuries of historical and philosophical thought. By looking at Scheele through our lens and recognizing that his lens, in his time, was vastly different, we are forced to reckon with issues that we have inherited. How young is too young? How should we value girls and women? Can a female be both an independent agent and an object of desire? How should we portray women in art today, and do sexualizations in art necessarily promote the idea of women as objects? Or is there a freedom found in sexuality that artists have, for centuries, subtly hinted at? One part I really like to remember, and, and that probably accurately sums this up, is this quote. In remembering the Holocaust, we remember Hitler. We debate him, reflect on him, and question his society and how he was formed with it. Can we not do the same with artists? Finally, our honorable mention, the USA-UK Contemporary by Banksy. An avant-garde artist known for his advocacy on behalf of children, Banksy painted Girl with an Umbrella in New Orleans following Hurricane Katrina in 2008. His art featuring girls is unashamedly meant to be disturbing through the contrast of their cuteness and embodied innocence with the situations they are drawn with. This work, in particular, has multiple interpretations. Some see her umbrella as a metaphor for failed government action to help those affected by the hurricane. Others see it as a call to action, as if Banksy is challenging us to save this little girl from her fate. Since the rain only falls on her umbrella, and not the space around her, some have suggested it is Banksy trying to inspire us to save this girl from oppression, which is said to shield her, but in reality abuses and harms her. Whatever the meaning, this image by Banksy, an anonymous graffiti artist, is a personal love of mine, because it shows that art is not just framed things in galleries and museum walls. It surrounds us, embraces us, challenges us in our own spaces, and reminds us that girls are in our spaces too. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. Be sure to tune in to our next podcast as we discuss our exhibit, Girl Saints. Finally, please help to support future production of Girl Speak by visiting us at www.girlmuseum.org and clicking donate. Thank you and have a wonderful day. If you like hearing a fresh, girl-positive perspective on the internet, please support us with a tax-deductible donation easily made on our website. Our music is courtesy of up-and-coming artist Han Av. You can find her SoundCloud link on our website.